the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Joined now by former Secretary of State, former Director of the Central Intelligence Agency, former member of Congress, Mike Pompeo. Mr. Pompeo, welcome back. Mr. Secretary, great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be with you this morning. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, last time I had you on, I blew my outline. We were talking about CAFPAC.com, your new political action committee, supporting people who support free markets, free people, and the idea that America leads the West and should. But I didn't ask you what a pipe hitter is. And I got that question immediately after people went to the website. What is a pipe hitter, Mike Pompeo? You know, it's someone who gets stuff done. The the term came from my uh, chief of staff when I was a director of the CIA, and it was shorthand for if I'd ask him about someone, he'd say, yes, sir, she's a pipe hitter, or nope, she's not. It was some people who cared, who were patriotic, who were working on a, a road bump, a speed bump become a mountain. They get stuff done. They make it happen. They're dedicated and focused. That's a pipe hitter. There's lots of them out there in America, and we need, we need them engaged, actually changing the nature of what we're doing here in America today. How has the launch of CAVPAC gone? It's been great. It's been uh, both productive and lots of fun. Uh, we've heard from people all across America. Uh, we raised a little bit of money from them as well, uh, who are very concerned about what's happening, whether it's a crime in their cities or critical race theory in their schools. They're, they're very concerned about the, the direction that their communities are taking, and they are prepared to get up, get out, and get engaged. And CAPAC's been an important part of that. I've traveled most all the country. I'm out again next week in Missouri, New York, uh, Iowa. I can't remember a couple other places. Uh, continuing to advance the causes you described that CAVPAC stands for. Well, people can go to CAVPAC, C-A-V-P-A-C dot com. I, uh, I called you up last night because I wanted to talk to you about Russian hackers. We've got a story subsequent about China, and I want to talk about CRT. But let's begin with the reason I called you. Russian hackers accused of breaching a contractor at the RNC last week. The New York Times says it launched the single largest global ransomware attack on record. This all follows President Biden's sit-down with President Putin First of all, do you assume sovereign responsibility for the malware and cyber hacks originating from somewhere in Russia last week and in the months prior? I, I do, Hugh. It is important and reasonable to hold the Russian government accountable for the actions that take place inside of the country. I suppose it's possible these are rogue operators. My experience, both as the director and secretary of state, indicate that there are deep connections to Russian intelligence services and Russian government that are often are connected to these Ransomware attacks we're seeing, and the Russian government has the capacity and the responsibility to push back against them. Now, the first time I sat down with you on television, it was at Langley when you were running the CIA. And I asked you in that. That seems like a long time ago. It was. It was a long time ago. But I remember asking you, are we going to hit back against cyber attacks? And you just said something vague like, we have the capacity, but we're not going to discuss the specifics. I didn't look up the transcript. What ought to be the articulated policy of the United States? And did President Biden, in your opinion, communicate that to President Putin? 
So two things to think about here, Hugh. One is uh, we, we think a cyber tax is unique and new. In some sense, these ransomware taxes have been going on since since civilization began, right? You, you take an asset that's important to the other person, you demand something in exchange for its return. It's just because of cyber become cheaper, more prevalent, and now more actors can participate in it. But we've known for a long time how to respond. But these need to be serious. This is just like any other attack on the United States of America. We need to impose real costs on the decision makers that have the capacity to deter this. This is an attack on America, and the American government has responsibility to deter and impose costs until that deterrence takes effect. I, I, it doesn't appear that that message was passed sufficiently in Geneva when the two leaders were together. It's not a bad, President Biden says he threw a red line. It, it's, it's about the red line. You have to enforce it, but it is more important is to make sure that we communicate clearly and then demonstrate that we're prepared to impose real costs on the Russians until they change this behavior. Now, in the uh, in the Ruthless podcast, which I did yesterday with Josh Holmes, Josh said, and I like this, I want to steal it. You tell President Putin, you warn him, and then when it's violated, there shouldn't be a, a, a working stoplight in Moscow for weeks. Uh, do we have the capacity to do things like that to message, Mr. Secretary? I don't talk about any specific capability, Hugh, but suffice it to say, we have been working for an awfully long time to build out a set of capabilities that can be enormously cost-imposing on the Russians. Yes, we could we could absolutely do those kinds of things and then message around it to make clear that the Russians understood what happened, who did it, why we did it, and what our expectation is. Those, those are the elements of deterrence to go back a long way to you in both diplomacy and war. Those are the elements of deterrence that you have to lay down. We could do it. We have the capability to make those things happen. The Russian people would become aware of it they would begin to put pressure. So this, this can't be a freebie for the Russians or the Russian people. We've got to impose real costs. Now, uh, Mr. Secretary, you obviously still have ties and contacts throughout the uh, all branches of government. Will you know, but not the public, if we execute? Or will will everybody know that we've executed in the same way that everybody knows this is Putin and Russia hitting us? It depends on the course of action they take, but it's likely if we take an action that has sufficient cost imposition on the Russians, it'd be likely that the, whether it was acknowledged or not, that is, whether we claimed responsibility for it or not, that the world would know that there was a response, and it's almost certain that the likely actor will be pinned on being us. Uh, but it is important that we get that messaging right. You have to make clear to them that you can't do these kinds of attacks and ask for $10, 50000000 million dollars and allow American businesses and American workers to suffer at the hands of these Russian rogue actors. Now, I, I want to ask you one last thing about this. The red line in President Obama's era was not enforced. It led to the greatest fiasco the world has seen in the last 20 years, the Syrian genocide, uh, just because he walked away from a red line. President Biden gave a list to President Putin. Good move or bad move? And now what does he have to do? We were very careful in establishing boundaries and speaking to our adversaries about the things we were prepared to do. We were also uh, very careful not to make any claim of something we were prepared to do if we weren't prepared to do it. It worked. It worked in the Middle East. It worked in Asia, with the North Koreans. It worked in lots of places around the world. When, when you communicate to an adversary that if they cross a certain line or if they engage in a certain activity that you will respond and don't, Katie barred the door here. We've seen this time and time again throughout history. We've seen it work when sharp, sharp lines were drawn. And when those sharp lines are crossed and they are not enforced, 
you can see the kinds of things that happen that reduce American security. You, you, you mentioned Syria. The list is long. So to put a bow on it, from the Barbary pirates in Jefferson to the day, if somebody attacks you, you have to hit back, correct? It's, it's really simple, Hugh. That's correct. All right, let me go to the story from Reuters last night and this morning. China's gene giant, BGI Group, is amassing and analyzing with artificial intelligence 8 million blood tests that uh, women seeking to know if they were pregnant took prenatal tests. They're holding on to the data. It shocks me. It shocked Dwayne. It shocks everyone. Are you surprised? Sadly, Hugh, I'm not surprised. The Chinese Communist Party is, is, is no longer capable of surprising me. You, you were with me the day I gave the remarks in the spring of 2020 at the Nixon Library, where we talked about exactly this kind of activity from the Chinese Communist Party. Everything that their government does is connected to the military, and everything that comes under the face of their private sector is connected to that government and that military. No surprise that they're, they've got uh, prenatal testing that's taking place, and they're collecting DNA from women across the world for their database. You think think about the collection of this genomic data. This harkens back to the 1930s. This is the kind of thing where they're trying to figure out how to create how how traits follow genetics. We we know this history of communist parties and totalitarian regimes. They, they are big. They are capable. It's not just this prenatal testing. I talked about it with respect to the data collection that TikTok was engaged in and tied to their military apparatus. This is a broad-based effort to collect information, to collect data for the benefit of a regime that has the intent on global hegemony. I I think the American people are waking to this. It is time that we all do. We're going to have to enlist every capability, including American business, to push back against exactly the kind of things that you saw in this Reuters article. It's a long piece. And uh, when I think when American people read this and and mothers all across the world read this, they're going to be shocked as well. Oh, it's it's sort of the worst nightmare. If you give the Nazis DNA, imagine what they would have done. Not not just Jews, but kulaks in the Soviet Union, any ethnic group that's ever been targeted on the basis of a DNA profile will be targeted with greater intensity and focused by a centralized totalitarian regime. It's, it is really Orwellian. Yeah, we've seen the Chinese efforts for decades of population control, making decisions about when and who can have children. We see now trying to eliminate an entire class of people, the Uyghur ethnic minorities in the West. So they're denying them. They're forced sterilizing those women. They're forcing abortions while they're now saying we want more ethnic Han Chinese to have babies. This is this is we, we know this history, Hugh. And this is another example of the Chinese Communist Party that is going to use every tool that they have in their power to create what they view as this uh, middle kingdom, this. Uh, all-important, all-powerful entity that emanates from Beijing. The the world must rise up to stop it. Now, every day, Mr. Secretary, I worry that we're going to see Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman emerge from a hotel in Vienna and declare peace is at hand with the uh, Iranian regime, despite the election of a president and likely successor to the Ayatollah Khamenei, who is a menace. Do you have that same fear? I do, Hugh. And in fact, I, I think it's pretty likely. The administration has taken a fundamentally different view than we did the Trump administration on the Middle East. They are cozying up to the Iranians in ways that remind me of 2015, exactly what they did last time, which emboldened the Iranian regime to conduct terror campaigns all across the world. What, what we did worked. We denied them the resources and the capabilities. You, you see, by the way, you see it playing out in our military bases in Iraq today with Iranian 
back militias now attacking Americans. Again, we shouldn't be sitting in Vienna with Ibrahim Raisi, the butcher of Tehran. We shouldn't be granting them the opportunity to have billions of dollars in wealth to build a missile program and continue their efforts towards a nuclear program. Those are enormous mistakes for American security. Now, Mr. Secretary, uh, I want to go back to your days of Congress and before, even uh, after your military service after West Point, to your Harvard Law School year. What year did you graduate from Harvard Law School? I graduated in 1994. Okay, so that is a good 15 to 20 years after critical legal theory in the form of Duncan Kennedy and Mark Tushnet established its beachhead at, at HLS. Did you come in contact with it then, and, and have you watched it since, and what is your assessment of CLT and its its subheading, critical race theory? Yes, it, it began in the 70s, at least in the United States, legal, legal world, legal academia. It was definitely at Harvard when I was there. It's this idea that somehow... Uh, America is racist, and all everything revolves around race. And that, that's how the world is shaped: it's the oppressor class versus the oppressed class. This this notion that was in the legal space, you now see it in every walk of life. It's now infiltrating the United States military as well. These central ideas, these things are really dangerous. I saw them in the 1990s when I was in law school and had a chance to watch some of those professors who were radical left wingers who literally believed that our our nation was founded in a way that was so deeply flawed and racist and corrupt that they wanted to overturn every piece, every every central institution that has been so important to the world and to the American people. Uh, it, it, we're seeing in our schools today, not just in the colleges, not just in our law school campuses, but sadly in high schools as well. Hugh, you've got to push back against it. Now, there are two responses Uh Mr. Secretary, one is CRT is not being taught, and the other is it's being taught, and that's a good thing. What, is it being taught? I mean, do you run into it? You're out there, as you say, all over the country with CAVPAC. Do people talk to you about CRT? Yes. They tell me their kids in their schools, public schools, even in private schools, are being taught these ideas. They're taking, being forced, the kids are being forced to take lessons on white fragility, all the things that we've seen in the news. This is actually happening. I, I think the teachers' unions are driving this. And at the same time, uh, on the other hand, trying to deny it, saying nothing to see here, folks. This is, this is an idea that has been driven into our schools. Kids as young as 8, 9, and 10 years old are being presented this in their uh, teaching curriculum. Really dangerous. I, I think parents all across America can see this. I'm, I'm really heartened by the parental response, right? Not driven by anybody in Washington, D.C., local communities banding together to say enough's enough. We're not going to let our, te- our kids suffer being taught this crap. Now, Mr. Secretary, I have played a long coverage piece from CNN yesterday by Ellie Reeve. I can't play it again. It was really one of the worst reports I've ever heard on CNN, and that's saying something. Here is one statement by the, quote, reporter about critical race theory. I'd like your comment as a lawmaker in the past. She's talking about the 1994 uh, crime bill. She doesn't mention it by name, but here is what she says. In the 90s, the crime bill gave much more severe sentencing to crack cocaine versus powder cocaine simply because black people were perceived as doing crack cocaine and white people. That is a statement of fact, Mr. Secretary, that does not describe the 1994 crime bill in its 350 pages or specify about what she's talking or cited. Is that a correct statement of fact? It is not, Hugh. It's got the facts wrong and intentionally so. No, knowingly so. That makes it all the worse. She is, in fact, lying. 
she knows what the 1994 crime bill was aimed at. It was aimed at the very things that we're going to have to tackle again now, as you can see. Dozens of murders, dozens of shootings in big cities all across America every single week. Uh, we've got to get back to making sure that we support law enforcement and law enforcers. Now, CRT does identify disparate impact. There was a disparate impact as the result of the crime bill, and it's being remedied. It needs to be remedied because cocaine is cocaine. However, to attribute intentionality is the key constitutional test. You know that. I know that. Is it incumbent on reporters to understand that and fairly represent what CRT and behind it CT is? Yes, this is what they're missing. I think some of the reporters, and perhaps she didn't understand it either, although I I suspect that this reporter did. Uh, Disparate impact is something that the courts stare at, but it's about what the uh, the effort is, what the intent is. This is the difference between equality and equity, and it's what the Biden administration is pushing. They want equitable outcomes to be demanded when, in fact, we know the world doesn't work that way. What we should be shooting for is what our founders understood. A simple idea, which is that every human being is created in the image of God and should be treated equally. And our laws must do that. If our laws don't, whether that's the 1994 crime bill or any other law, we got to fix it. But we can't be running around every time we find some anomaly in the data set that suggests that there are uh, a, a disparate impact, a, a different number of one class or one race or another falls into a particular group that we're going to use the full force and power of the United States government to go fix that. We should be about equality, not equity. Now, disparate impact analysis, and I don't want to leave people in the weeds, but you're a lawyer as well as a national security expert. I I just want you to to comment on that. It is not unconstitutional uh, to have disparate impact. It is always unconstitutional, with one exception, to have an intentional difference based on race. That one exception is affirmative action in some settings. The two Michigan cases acceptable in the law school, unacceptable the system they adopted in the undergraduate. I expect that to be overturned. Chief Justice Roberts, in his 2007 majority opinion in Seattle School District, said, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think it's pretty close by memory, the way to end racial discrimination is to end discriminating on the basis of race. And it is adamant. I believe there will be a 6-3 vote on that. What do you think about that rule? There has to be race neutrality everywhere, whenever the government is involved. I don't want to get too far in the weeds either, but it's a simple idea. The simple idea is that you you can't solve uh, some racial inequity by creating more racial division. It's what what the critical race theorists get fundamentally wrong. They believe that if you divide and and identify by race or by class or by sector, they, they, they believe in their heart that they, they can both create division, which benefits them because it overthrows what they see as these oppressive power structures. And they they know full well that this is not the right path. I hope the Supreme Court gets this right. I hope they take take race out of decision making by government. We want everyone, whether they're Hispanic or African-American, or whoever place they come from, to have every same opportunity of every other American. So to tie a, 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 a bow on the entire interview, Mr. Secretary, I'm going to go back to Russia. When Russia attacked the 2016 election, they didn't do so with any intention of successfully manipulating the result, and they didn't. But they did sow a lot of disinformation that has festered and metastasized across the United States so that we are now genuinely fighting each other on everything at all times. Is this what Putin had in mind? And, and is this what the Steele dossier did and the, the witch hunt did, the Russia, Russia, Russia attack? Is this what he wanted, Putin? 
It's undoubtedly the case that Russian disinformation is is aimed squarely at sowing discord inside the United States. It's why you see not only the Russians, but the Chinese. They talk about the the rioting. They talk about Black Lives Matter. They talk about all right. They they said this to our diplomats in Anchorage. Uh, President Putin talked about this when he gave his solo press conference in Geneva. Right. They raise these issues to suggest somehow America is not an exceptional nation, that we're in decline, that we are evil in the same way that they are. Those are fundamentally false statements, but they know if they propagate those stories, they can create division in the United States, thereby weaken us and give them relative power. So what ought the president and the vice president who has been to Central America and, quote, the border, uh, what ought they to be saying in response to the general concern out there uh, that the United States is at each other's throats when the rest of the world is busy kicking us when we're both down? Well, first, I need to defend the American ideal and the American, the nature of America as an exceptional country. You know, Barack Obama went on his famous uh, apology tour, but President Biden hasn't been much better at defending America. He went to Europe and said, hey, we're back somehow as if we had had four years where we were simply no better than uh, some third world country that was despotic or authoritarian. Th- those are dangerous ideas to be passing along to the world. They, they need to defend the things the United States has done. We have been You know this. We have been a force for good in the world for an awfully long time. We should be proud of this. And this is what American leaders must do. If we get those right, America won't be we won't be managing American decline. We will continue to manage the greatest nation in the history of civilization. Secretary Mike Pompeo, always great to talk to you. Please keep coming back. Good luck on your travels next week. So long. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.